0: Welcome to That Said, I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Julian Zelizer about his new book, Abraham Joshua Heschel, A Life of Radical Amazement. Rabbi Heschel was one of the most important progressive religious voices that helped raise our national consciousness in the 1960s and beyond. Julian Zelizer is the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes class of 1941 Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University. He is the award-winning author and editor of 20 books on American political history. He is a regular commentator on CNN and National Public Radio. Julian, welcome to That Said. Thanks for having me. So Julian, I like to start these interviews by asking our authors to tell us a bit about themselves, and in particular, in this case, where you have a book that's dedicated to your grandfather and your father, which reads, they taught me what it means to live a Jewish life and showed me the central role that rabbis play in our historic community.
1: Well, uh, yes, it's a pleasure to uh, talk a little bit about how that my background relates. I mean, I'm a professional historian. That's what I do uh, in in front of my students and uh, often in front of audiences in the media. I'm an analyst for CNN I'm interested in American history since the 1950s uh, and different elements of it, but politics in particular. And when I do stuff on CNN or NPR, my goal is really to try to translate a little bit of what the Academy is doing on issues that are relevant today uh, to the kinds of questions that are in the news. I have another uh, part of me that is relevant to this book. I grew up Uh, as a conservative Jew, not conservative politically, but in terms of denomination. And my father uh, was a rabbi in Metuchenne, New Jersey, a conservative rabbi uh, who went to the Jewish Theological Seminary for his training. Uh, And his father was also a rabbi, my grandfather, who also went to JTS uh, and was a rabbi for over 40 years in Columbus, Ohio, and then retired in Florida and ended up starting Think four or five other synagogues before he passed away. So uh, I remained an observant Jew, uh, and so this book was at the intersection of those two parts of my
0: life. Why did you decide to write it, though, Julian? You've written nineteen books, all of which are involving politics and history. And this one is a detour, in a sense.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a a good question. Um, I mean, I think I I never know exactly what leads up to a decision like that uh, in terms of which projects to take. Part of it, it did flow out of something I had written about um, and it stuck. I had written a book about Lyndon Johnson, and The Great Society, which was kind of big history of the 1960s. And one of the kind of sub themes in the book uh, had been the role religious organizations played in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, and I was very interested not just the black church, um, but but other groups were quite important in states like Illinois to building pressure uh, on this issue in a way civil rights leaders couldn't. And so I, I wanted to do more on religion and politics. And so when this was offered to me, um, when the press approached me, it was a perfect opportunity to do that. Part of it's the personal story. Um, I mean, this is a way authors are always looking to kind of use your tools professionally uh, to study a little bit about your world. And in this case, literally my father and grandfather's world at the Jewish Theological Seminary and American Judaism after um, World War Two. Uh, and so that was interesting. And finally, I had just, uh, you know, I was in the process of finishing a book on Newt Gingrich, <clears throat> which we discussed. And you know, he was a very toxic figure and a lot of the book was about really the underside of American political life. So the opportunity to write about Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was inspirational and and remains inspirational, was really appealing. Um, And I ended up doing a lot of it in the pandemic. So it kind of took on even more meaning to me as that happened. But those are the reasons I ended up writing this book.
0: And you say, I heard you say once that the Goal of this book, or among the goals of this book, was to try to understand Heschel in the context of U.S. history in the 50s and 60s, vis a vis religious life, civil rights, anti war. Um, so you studied him sort of through the lens of American history, it seems.
1: That's exactly right. And I, I mean, I think that's why the editor of this series was interested in having me do it. Um, a lot of American religious history for history of Judaism and other religions is very internally done, driven. Uh, There's a kind of small group of scholars, all excellent, but they write in some ways amongst themselves. And one of the challenges is always connecting their work to bigger stories of American history in a given period. And Heschel's a bit like this, meaning there are Heschel scholars and there's people who focus on his theology and his role in Jewish history. Not as much has really been done to make him a central figure in American history. And so that was really my goal in writing the book. And, uh, you know, the point is both to understand him. But if you're studying U.S. history in this period, this is a figure you should be aware of.
0: You should be aware of him in today's history as well as in history history, because he's got a lot of lessons to teach us today. The subtitle of the book is A Life of Radical Amazement. And Heschel talked about wonder being the root of all knowledge. Can you tell us what this concept of a life of radical amazement means? It informs his behavior and his theology that we'll talk about as we go forward.
1: Yeah, he writes a series of books in the 1940s and 50s that do pretty well. They they get a lot of attention. And a bunch of them are about the relationship of God to humans. And he's very interested in what does it mean to be a person of faith, What does it mean to be a pious person? And ultimately, how can a person uh, hear God, hear what God had to say? He imagined a God uh, that had human pathos, was capable of love and anger and compassion. And so part of what he writes about in two books, one, God and Search of Man, which comes out in 1955, and another earlier, Man is Not Alone, in 1951, was um, kind of the... uh, The the way in which religious practice and religious practice done in the right way gradually makes people more cognizant of all elements of the world they take for granted. The trees, the clouds that literally see the wonder of the world that is often uh, ignored and ultimately uh, to be able to connect to the divine uh, through that kind of pious action and and once one achieves that. Um, there's a state of radical amazement um, where you surpass yourself and are truly cognizant of of the world around you. And this was a really important idea for him uh, and really central to his writing about how people need to strive to achieve that.
0: Yeah. And he said, did he not, that once you enter this state of radical amazement, only then can you transcend ego, which is the prerequisite to being pious.
1: That's exactly right. And so, uh, this is about getting beyond yourself. Um, and he's writing this, these books, part of it is theological and he's trying to kind of lay out his theological argument, but he's also writing the aftermath of the Holocaust, of nuclear bombs, of just a lot of bad things. And so it's kind of very important for him to try to lay out a roadmap of, uh, how people can essentially live better lives. Um, you know, and so that we are not only more spiritual but more moral.
0: I'd like to talk about Heschel's life because the book tracks it from Warsaw to Cincinnati to New York and, and beyond. But before we do that, just for the listening audience, can you give us, in broad terms, a few minutes on who was Heschel, what did he stand for, and why does he endure? What, what's his importance?
1: Yeah. So um, he's an immigrant from Warsaw. That's the the bottom line is he grows up in a Hasidic family, very religious. He's trained as a kid to be a rabbi, um, but ultimately leaves Warsaw, leaves that Jewish community because he's also interested in the secular world and gets a Ph.D. at the University of Berlin in philosophy, even while he continues his training and ends up in the United States. Um, first kicked out of Germany by the Gestapo in 1938 and then saved. And he's brought here. Um, we can talk about it through the Hebrew union college in say, and he spends his life in the forties and fifties as a writer. Um, he's a professor of theology and he's writing the books about uh, the relationship of, of man and God. He's writing, he wrote a book about the Sabbath. He's, there's a whole world of religious publishing that he's part of, which today seems like a different world where people could write books about these kinds of questions and there was a, a market for them and there was a kind of a world of fellow colleagues working on these and by the 60s uh, his writing leads him to the streets he becomes someone in the 60s who's involved in a number of social movements uh, he's one of the early movers on the uh, emerging kind of issue of soviet Jewry and the need to rescue um, Jews who are living under the Soviet Union. He's involved in Vatican II, um, which are, uh, is an effort to rethink certain parts of Vatican doctrine, of Catholic, Catholic doctrine, including, um, anti Semitic, uh, ideas. He's involved in the civil rights movement and becomes very close friends with King. And in the second half of the 60s, really becomes, uh, not just involved, but an organizer in the anti-Vietnam movement so by the end of his life this guy who is pretty um controversial as a as a thinker and a writer and we can talk about that uh, and controversial politically has kind of become one of the figures of the 60s from the world of religion who's on the streets uh who's connecting religion and god and piety to the fight against um things such as the Vietnam War and he's remained. Uh, and become more important in some ways than even during his lifetime uh and for many uh, liberal or progressive jews he's an uh, icon uh, the images of him his words of of someone who ultimately saw how his judaism uh inevitably brought him uh to the fight for social justice and i think he's remembered that way today
0: you're right of him that he was a religious leader and public intellectual who dedicated his career to writing and speaking about his faith's devotion to the struggle to improve the human condition. And Heschel said of himself, I live in Auschwitz. Since Auschwitz, I have only one rule of thumb to do. And that would be to ask, would this be acceptable for those who were burned there? So we want to talk a little bit about that aspect of his?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it, it's something he didn't always talk about explicitly. Um, he wasn't someone talking about the Holocaust all the time but it was always on his mind and it was on his mind uh, a as someone who came from Warsaw uh, it was his community was you know totally ravaged um, during the war he'd been in Berlin as the Nazis were coming into power in the early and mid-1930s and he's studying watching this and observing it frustrated that the Christian community in Germany wasn't really doing much as this all happened and he's kicked out of Germany by the Gestapo. So it was very real to him. And then when he comes to Cincinnati between 1940 and 45, the war has terrible personal effect. His mother and three sisters are all killed during the war, in different ways, uh, two in an extermination camp. His mother is killed um, when the Gestapo come to arrest her. Uh, she has another a heart attack and the other sister was killed in the bombing. Um, so it's it's devastating to his family and he follows this here and it depresses him. Uh, he's also in the United States during the first part of his time here, very frustrated with the not only Christian community, but the American Jewish community for not seeing and feeling a sense of urgency about rescuing Jews who are trapped and being killed. Um, by the Nazis. And so for the rest of his life, I think, I mean, a lot of what he's trying to do, both as a writer and then as an activist, is to offer his response and to try to work out a world, whether it's through his theology or whether it's through um, his activism, um, where uh, a certain kind of piety and morality that he helps to spread would be the best check for a world where Nazism can be acceptable.
0: He thought unlike many that uh, other religious leaders that secular society wasn't really a threat to religion, that he saw religion as a way to make secular society a better place for everyone, which led to his activism. Do I have that right?
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And it's, I mean, I don't think it's um, not, everyone gets that part of him. Uh, He's very religious person. And, uh, Again, he's, he's raised in the Hasidic tradition. Today, kind of orthodox uh, as his life evolved, although he was hard to pin down. Um, but ultimately, he was not someone who rejected secular society. He was not a very religious, devout person who wanted to insulate himself. Uh, he loved the university. He believed in the sciences. Uh, and he talked about all this. And he understood kind of the importance and magnificence of a lot of what had been built. But secular society had to be repaired. And I think he believed religion was a way in which that could happen. Uh, And so that was his aim uh, in in not only talking about these issues, but ultimately trying to translate them to other movement leaders.
0: Mm. And I think we will not talk a lot about his writings, about God in search of man and man in search of God. But I would like to, again, before we delve more, Closely into his biography. Tell us about the prophets, which that is, I guess, his most influential work in this sphere of civic political activism.
1: Yeah, it is. And so the Hebrew prophets, the, the book on the Hebrew prophets is his dissertation. That's where he first works on it in Germany in the thirties. And he's interested in um, essentially religious consciousness. Uh And he's already working out with the prophets some of these ideas of how does someone get to the point where they can essentially hear God. Uh, And then he revises this into a book. uh, He does in the late 50s and early 60s. And the book comes out right when the civil rights movement is really flourishing. And uh, the book is a portrait of the different uh, Hebrew prophets and treating them uh, not as people who are uh, as often treated kind of insane or really far out there, but instead as people who were hearing God's rage uh, about a lot of what was going on in the world that most people in their own lifetime was indif- were indifferent to. Uh, and so they've achieved this state of mind we discussed earlier. And as a result, they're talking about corruption and they're talking about poverty and they're talking about violence in the world. Uh, and that's how the book comes off. And a lot of civil rights leaders, especially those who come from the religious world, like Andrew Young, uh, kind of read his book. And they're very taken by it. They each have some prophet who they find um, very meaningful in terms of their own understanding of what was going on. And it's through that book that he himself, Heschel, comes to see that he wants to be part of the movement uh, that's taking place, not just thinking about it or following it on the news. So it's a an important book and, and really helps kind of cement his reputation um, nationally.
0: Yeah, he says of the prophets that they refused to be neutral in the face of the evil they witnessed. And that yep. is something he sought to emulate. Yeah.
1: And, and he writes about this a lot. And it's a message Martin Luther King will talk about as well, that indifference is really one of the great dangers in any society. It's not simply the people who are perpetuating bad things but it's everyone else who doesn't do anything, and that indifference is again what angered him so much during world war ii i mean that was really uh on his mind it's not surprising that that becomes part of this book on the prophets and he'll continue to talk about uh the real threat of indifference that essentially allows bad norms and bad actors to thrive in the lived world
0: yeah, he says that prophets remind us of the moral state of people. Few are guilty, but all are responsible, and that all are responsible line emanates from his view that societal indifference is the most insidious evil—way worse than evil itself—is indifference to evil. Yeah, and this is
1: important in religion. I mean, we we think of the '60s, and and he's an example of of '60s progressive religious activism and how there were religious leaders who kind of were aware of why civil rights was so important. And if you study civil rights, you'll study the Black church. So religion is very present in the social justice movements. But a lot of religious leaders were either hostile to civil rights or the anti-war movement, or just as relevant for what we're talking about, they were indifferent. There were a lot of preachers who didn't want to be involved with this in the South a lot of white preachers just didn 't say anything. There were a lot of black American preachers who were too scared uh, to even open the doors of their church to movement meetings and similarly with the war so um, that indifference was a it was a very real issue it wasn 't simply imagined and that 's I think what really was frustrating I me mean, was trying to shake complacency uh, and to move people into
0: action in fact, I think in 1963, he went to the White House at uh, President Kennedy's uh, request, and he wrote to Kennedy ahead of it saying, the likelihood exists that the Negro problem will be like the weather. Everyone talks about it, but nobody does anything about it. Please, as he's getting ready to receive these religious leaders, he says to Kennedy, please demand of religious leaders personal involvement, not just solemn declarations.
1: Yeah. Uh, And he sends that in a telegram. And, and again, that is directly out of his experience because in the, um, in the forties, so for example, in 1942, he spent his summers in New York when he was working at Cincinnati. He loved New York. It was the center of Jewish life. He loved the Jewish theological seminary. And one summer he was here, he went to a big rally in Madison square garden in 1942 where all these dignitaries spoke out against what was happening and about what Nazis were doing and the need to uh, save Jews and rescue them. But then literally nothing happened. He went back to Cincinnati. He's incredibly frustrated. The people talk, they go to a rally, but then there's no action. And I think fast forward um, to civil rights, I think he was seeing a lot of the same thing. And this is it's it's kind of it's a really uh, uh, significant part of his thinking.
0: So we've talked about Cincinnati a little bit, and we've talked about Warsaw and Berlin. But why don't we just spend just a, a few minutes taking us through the chronology? He's, as you said, born in Warsaw in 1907 and raised in a Hasidic family, but essentially elects to become a more secular Jew. Than, uh, he's not going to just spend his life studying Halakha. He's going to be involved in the world shaves and moves forward so take us a, a little bit from warsaw to berlin and then maybe we'll pause at cincinnati for a minute so we can figure yeah, out so, hebrew union college so yeah. about.
1: no no so he grows up in in a, a very traditional uh area of warsaw warsaw has a, a very a huge jewish population um not quite 50 percent, but a, a big percentage of the city is jewish and And that is a city not just with Hasidic Jews, where he grows up, um, but also labor, radical labor uh, uh, leaders, early Zionists, poets, and playwrights who are often quite radical in what they were doing. Uh, And he grows up in a world where he's ensconced in the traditional part, but he always is watching and a little bit interacting with this other world as well. His family is a family of very distinguished uh, Hasidic rabbis. So um, they're kind of elevated in the community, and he's very bright from a young age, uh, able to learn texts very young, and he's being trained in this, but, but by the time he's in his teens um, and, and his father dies uh, very early um, uh, during the influenza outbreak, he's kind of becoming interested in something more. And yes, he goes, uh, his father dies when he's nine. Uh, And and Heschel, by the time he's high school age-ish, it's it's obviously a different system. He decides and tells his mother that he wants to leave, even though he's still being trained as a Rebbe. And and first he goes to Vilna, um, where he goes to gymnasium, which is uh, kind of teaching basically secular studies that he'll need to go to the university. And then he ends up in Berlin. His family lets him do it. His mother is very worried about this but she ultimately understands how smart he is and hopes that ultimately he'll still return and still be a a Rebbe, but one educated. Uh, But that never happens. He goes to Berlin. Uh, Berlin is in the 30s, one of the finest institutions of learning in the world. He studies with all these great philosophers. He loves Berlin as a city. He's very enmeshed in different intellectual networks and going to the homes of, of famous thinkers and uh, people like Martin Buber are really uh, getting to know who he is. Uh, and he writes his dissertation and ultimately is able to get his degree. Uh And he moves then to Frankfurt, where he takes over a, a Jewish adult education program, which was very distinguished at the time. And he's doing some good work there. But again, in October of 1938, uh the Gestapo round up. Uh, Jews who were there from other countries and kicked them out. And he's sent to a camp on the border and ultimately rescued by his family. Uh, But he's made a name for himself by the time he's kicked out as a a pretty interesting, smart uh, and up and coming thinker. He's also one other thing. He's written poetry along the way. Um, He becomes very interested in poetry and uh, has a number of publications
0: by this point in his life. You say of him freed from the pressure of being a rabbinic son in the heart of Warsaw's Hasidic community, he thrived in his secular studies and came to appreciate the contribution secular Jews were in trying to improve the world yeah. with.
1: I think he did. And I, I think, I mean, he had real divisions with them too. So many of the people he was friendly with and interacting with had a very different view of God. Heschel believed God existed. I mean, that was simply a bottom line for him. Whereas many of um, the people he was interacting with, the thinkers often who were Jewish, they believed God was a metaphor for something or a symbol. And this was a, a point of contention between him and some of his colleagues. He was also frustrated in Berlin with the Weakness of religious institutions. And he talked about this and and noted this later in his life that he would walk the streets pretty frustrated that uh, that intense Jewish world that he was in back in Warsaw wasn't there. And I think um, that was also a, a problem for him. That said, he loved the city, he loved the culture, and he really loved the world of the university and the world of ideas.
0: In Weimar, Germany, In Berlin at at this time. It was really the sort of heart of European culture and industry. And the Jews were very assimilated. They were much more like, by today's definitions, Reform Jews. He came out of a Hasidic Orthodox tradition, but he maintained, as you said, this unwavering belief in God, that God was the center of the understanding of all human ethical and religious activity, not a mathematical proposition that needed to be proved. There was no room for doubt. So that's a struggle for him, right, as he sees the essentially the reform movement turning away from what he thinks the orthodoxy requires to reach this level of radical amazement and piety and the like.
1: It's true. And even the orthodox in Germany, and there was a community, they're much more formal, um, and and kind of the institutions are a lot more rigid. He wasn't simply from a what we would call an Orthodox background, but from a Hasidic one, which believed in kind of exuberant uh, prayer and dance and belief in mysticism in the Kabbalah. And that was also something he found missing in Germany. And there were a lot of German intellectual Jews who liked him. In part, there's this revival of Hasidism, Hasidism in Germany during the 1930s, where a lot of um, Jewish intellectuals who had distanced themselves from religion are intrigued by really a nostalgic look at what uh, Eastern Europe Hasidism is. It's it's kind of inspirational for them. It has the spirit that they believe is lacking from Jewish life in Germany, um, and this is part of how he's also brought in. Those differences were pretty important to him. And and he noted them all the time. And I think he was trying to work out where does he fit in this modern world or emerging
0: world of Jewish life? Yeah, He argued, did he not, that without this living this tradition as Jews, that we Jews would go under. Ultimately, that link to the tradition, this educational ideal, was a prerequisite for survival.
1: No, absolutely. And um, kind of this was separate than the uh, literal survival question that will emerge uh, as a result of the Holocaust. But throughout his life, he is writing with a real, uh, uh, I think, piece of urgency about why all of this is important. And we'll talk about his views of the modern synagogue in the United States. But he he often was very uh, upset by what he was seeing in, in Jewish life because he didn't believe that, uh, enough people were really attached to the tradition and understood what it meant uh, to practice. And he worried that if that was the case, ultimately the religion would wither.
0: And he gets to the United States in flight from the Holocaust, although I think he was in England, but, and he ends up on a recommendation by Martin Buber, of all people, I guess, to the Hebrew Union. College in Cincinnati. and Tell us what is that and how did he interact with the heart of what is the reform movement in the United States?
1: So the Hebrew Union College was a seminary that trained uh, reform uh, Jewish rabbis and it was a a pretty distinguished uh, institution. And the guy who was the head of it was a guy named Julian Morgenstern. And Morgenstern was very uh, eager and concerned about trying to save as many eastern european jewish intellectuals as he could and the reform movement had given him some support the seminary gave him support and uh, through recommendations including martin buber that uh, heschel ends up as one of the fellows and takes a long time to get the visa he almost thinks he will come but, but he ends up in cincinnati in 1940 and will remain there as a fellow and then a faculty member until 45 and uh, it's hard i think uh, everything we talked about with World War II just makes that period difficult, regardless of where he was. He he was watching the news all the time and desperately um, trying to communicate with the family members who were surviving and just deeply depressed about what was going on. Um, But being in a seminary of Reformed Jews, given his own doubts and concerns about the direction of Judaism was hard. A lot of the rabbinic students Um, didn't know Hebrew. They didn't keep kosher. They didn't do things he thought were basic parts of certainly being a rabbi, but of Jewish life. Uh, And he's very frustrated with it. And uh, he makes some good friends. He does have some students who really um, like him very much. But in some ways, he's an outlier there. He's kind of an oddity. That's not the place you'd expect him to be. And so when he leaves in 1945, I think That encounter with American Judaism was part of why he'll spend much of the next decade kind of issuing warnings and trying to offer different paths forward to save what was emerging
0: here. You're right that despite the disappointments he had in Cincinnati, it marked an important evolution in his thinking because it was here where he really started to study in depth the actions of humankind to understand why God might seem absent. From the world which is a big post holocaust where was god um, conversation but i want to talk a little bit about this evolution where he's studying the actions of humankind to understand why god might be absent from the world in which we live
1: yeah i mean uh he's uh, watching i mean the twin uh horrors for him are the holocaust and the nuclear bomb at the, the atomic bomb at the end of the uh, war and uh here's a person who's writing who spent all his time thinking about god who grew up really believing in um the uh kind of presence of god and constructing a whole life about how as an individual he could open himself up um to understanding that and to living a, a life according to jewish tradition um that was whole but yet these horrible things are happening uh, and he's watching his own family die and he's seeing Uh, So many people, he know, not do anything that by the time the war ends and the kind of results of the war becoming clear, um, this is the problem that he wants to understand. And it's not simply trying to tell the secular world this is what religion can do. But he I think he himself is working through what do we say about religion after all of this happened? Um, How do we justify and explain the importance of religious belief in a world that has gone so wrong? And I think that's a subtext for a lot of his work.
0: That he was trying to have this right that he was trying to have Judaism offer a key to preventing the type of mass injustice that he had seen in his life to this date.
1: Yeah, and he writes an article. He writes a couple articles for the Hebrew Union College Bulletin, um, and that's that's the theme. and And it's interesting to read because part of what he's saying is we allowed this world to happen, meaning we became so spiritually corrupt, or we avoided um, these questions of piety so much. That's when you have a world where Nazism can take hold. It's almost a, a firewall that if people are focused on being pious. If people take these questions of morality seriously, that that's ultimately the way to prevent horrible things from taking hold. If you don't have that, he would say, you, you become numb, uh, and you're indifferent. You're like, you know, the people, the Hebrew prophets are yelling at, uh, and it's too late. And, and so I think that's for him why this becomes so central in the coming decades.
0: So he leaves Cincinnati finally and he makes it to, uh to New York, and that's where he shows up at Jewish Theological Seminary. And there he's really going to study in greater detail both his theology and how Jews can make the world a better place and how religion could be informing of that. But it's really where his social activism takes root. He first marches in a rally in 1945, does he not, with respect to Roosevelt and I uh, see that's, so that's
1: it. That was in 1943. Um, he he goes to the rabbi's march in, in Washington, which is a march of 400 very traditional rabbis who march through the streets. They meet with members of Congress. They try to meet Roosevelt, but he won't meet with them um, because they're not the official Jewish leadership. But that's a taste of activism that really has an impact on him.
0: And so that's 43. Then 45 is when he shows up and and there is where he's exploring this notion of the relationship between religious piety and social justice. And it makes him a famous guy, really he's on the cover of, of magazines and and like, right?
1: Yeah, no, it's really, I I didn't know that usually the kind of traditional story of him is he becomes well-known as an activist in the sixties and before he was just a professor holed up at his office. And that's not quite true. Uh, His books, uh, so New York's the center of Jewish life after the war. It's important to remember it's just a bustling place. And some ways it's now replacing uh, so many cities that were destroyed uh, in Europe as well as Berlin. And it's exciting. And he's writing all these books. He has one book called The Sabbath that comes out in 1951, which is basically explaining what the Sabbath is and why it's meaningful in a very beautiful, easy uh, to follow way. Uh, And yes, by the end of the 1950s, um, uh, again, his books are part of this world of religious publishing, not just Jewish writers, but uh, writers like Reinald Niebuhr and Paul Tillich, who are uh, Christian theologians. They are getting reviewed in places. Um, He is in magazines like Newsweek and Time, not esoteric magazines, but popular magazines. And by the time the 60s start, he's a, he's a known figure. I mean, he's a known writer uh, grappling with these issues. And um, I think that was important to some of the impact he would have when he starts joining uh, movements.
0: Well, let's talk about the joining of movements. In, in 1963, at an interfaith conference on civil rights in Chicago, he gives a formal speech, which is really his coming of age as a civil rights leader. I'm not sure if you want to talk
1: about that. I will. I mean, that's so it's in Chicago um, and it's a a conference organized by King in January of 63. And King gets his name through uh, a kind of intermediary who had been working both with the civil rights movement and Jewish organizations. And so let
0: me just 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 say Martin Luther King gets. Rabbi Heschel's name yes. to an intermediary and invites him to this meeting in this conference yes. in Chicago, right?
1: Yes, exactly. Okay, sorry, go and on. So he gives one of the keynote speeches to a group of faith leaders. And Heschel gives one of the keynote speeches. And it's a really passionate speech where it's not subtle. Uh, you know, he, call, he equates uh, reli- uh, racism with blasphemy. He says it's Satanism. And he expresses... Um, Just how vital support for racial justice is. And in that speech, he is saying you can't sit on the sidelines on this, nor can you proclaim to be religious and racist, that the two are incompatible, which is a strong message because, again, many religious leaders were either silent and there were other religious leaders who weren't in favor of desegregation and voting rights. And this speech uh, gets a standing ovation when Heschel's done. King is impressed with Heschel and they spend some time together in Chicago. This is when uh, most agree their friendship started. Um, and and he's covered in the press because of this speech. Cornel West decades later would say it's one of the strongest speeches that a white person ever made um, about race and uh, racial justice. And so that's where His involvement starts and he'll continue to give talks primarily at different groups of interfaith uh, meetings, especially in the New York area on religion and race. And he participated in a few small um, protests here in in New York City uh, on issues like schooling. He'll go to Washington during the civil rights filibuster in 1964 and he'll be part of a vigil there. And ultimately he ends up in Selma in March of 65.
0: In this 1963 speech, which I think has echoes of Lincoln's second inaugural, which probably was the greatest speech on race by a white man, he said, Heschel speaking now, by negligence and silence, we have all become accessories before God to the injustice committed against the Negroes by men of our nation. Our derelictions are many. We have failed to demand, to insist, to challenge to chastise. It's strong stuff.
1: Very strong stuff. And I think that's why um, that opening speech, and he'd give variations of it over the next couple of years, um, really elevated uh, the way he could speak about this issue in ways others couldn't. And for many civil rights leaders who came from the Black church, his rhetoric, I say, really resonated in a way that some other liberals' rhetoric didn't. uh, he spoke in terms of the prophetic tradition. He spoke um, with a kind of biblical language in a way that for a king and others really was how you needed to talk about civil rights, not as a rational issue that needed to be solved pragmatically, uh, but as an issue of great moral urgency. And that's how Heschel wanted to speak about this.
0: The book on the first page has this iconic photo of Heschel in Selma with Dr. King. So can you describe, we're only audio, so you have to describe, but can you describe the photo and then talk about Heschel with Dr. King on the front line of that second march in Selma?
1: Yeah, so this is the march on March 21st, 1965. And basically the the famous march people know about um, was on March uh, 7th. It was called Bloody Sunday because that's the march where um, the police attack the protesters and John Lewis's head is cracked open uh, and bleeding. And uh, several weeks later, King has another march and the leaders have another march where they want to bring religious figures there because they want to show support for a voting rights bill that Johnson has now uh, said needs to pass Congress. And so, uh, Heschel is in the front row. It's a it's a great image there. It's You see um, uh, Ralph Bunch, you see Fred Shuttlesworth, who is another civil rights leader. You see King, um, who is two people down uh, from this line of protesters, two people down from Heschel. There's a nun uh, on the front line uh, who really looks like she's about to just jump off the page. You can see John Lewis in the front line. So King, uh, Heschel is standing with Incredibly prominent civil rights leaders he's wearing a Hawaiian lei, All the protesters are, which is a symbol of love and the image if if people look at it, you know by this point in his life, he has a long white goatee and he has you know kind of uh, wavy white hair, and he kind of looks like a prophet, some people say uh the physical appearance he's taking, and they're all walking arm in arm. Um, uh, And it's just an amazing image that remains to this day an image for many progressive Jews of of the potential of this tradition.
0: It was a symbol of the Jewish-American, Jewish-African-American progressive tradition. Mm -hmm. Now, he says something famous after marching in this Selma march. He says, I felt that anyone who participated in this march will never be the same. It was a great day in my life. I felt my legs were praying.
1: Yeah, so the the day is very special to him. He participates in the first leg of the march. He finds this whole experience uh, just mesmerizing and inspirational. And it's not an easy march. I mean, this is a march where, Uh, the marchers are surrounded by white protesters the signs he sees he put in his memoir um, some notes that he has in his archive the signs he sees are horrendous forms of anti-semitism and racism there is a southern woman who spits on the nun who's marching right alongside him and and so this isn't obvious that this would be inspirational but it is and the whole day for him really shows the power of social protest and the the kind of power of living a life like the prophet screaming for justice, uh, rather than silently sitting by as bad things happen. And uh, he also ends this March, this day, seeing that um, that it's important to show young people the connection between the Jewish tradition uh, and what was happening in these movements. It was a way to kind of revitalize interest in, in what religion could be. And so uh, he also said it reminded him of walking in Warsaw with the with the rabbis, with the Hasidic rabbis and the kind of exuberance he felt as a child. And so after Selma, I think the commitment to social activism is entrenched. Um, and, and that famous line by him um, about his legs, you know, feeling like his legs were praying kind of captured the marriage that has now been consummated for him um, between activism and the theological arguments he's been making.
0: And you see that in the next stage of his life, which is the him becoming a founding member of the clergy concerned about Vietnam, later uh, renamed as clergy and laymen concerned about Vietnam. And so tell us about how did he come to get involved with Vietnam? And, and he sort of brought Dr. King into the anti-war movement. We just heard how Dr. King invites Rabbi Heschel in 63 to Chicago and he makes this magnificent speech. And then you sort of take the opposite side of the coin and here's Heschel speaking to King about the importance of the anti-war movement. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So this easy. is
1: a really fascinating group. Um, and Heschel's more involved in the anti-war movement than civil rights. In many ways, <clears throat> civil rights, he participates in the march. And he gives these speeches, but with Vietnam, he's an organizer. And this group, it's called CalCAP for short is an interfaith group, Um, other members and founders were John Bennett, um, who was a theologian at the uh, Union Theological Seminary, William Sloan Coffin, uh, who is the chaplain at Yale University and others. Uh, And they hire someone named Richard Fernandez as their executive director. It starts small in 1965 as this informal gathering of religious leaders who basically wanna say, that anti-war protesters have the right to protest. And that's what they were standing up for. But it grows over the years, uh, really within a few months into an anti-war group. And they uh, distinguish themselves from the radical elements of the movement. And they wanted to kind of help give legitimacy to the protest against the war, give it moral weight and show that religious leaders, not just long-haired college students, um, found this to be wrong. And And the book, The Last Chapter, traces this organization. It grows. They'll have several of their own mobilizations in Washington where they bring uh, members to come and to protest and to meet with leaders. Uh, The organization draws on church and synagogue membership lists and kind of very ingenious in how they use the infrastructure of the church and the synagogue to to grow uh, what they're doing. And the media is fascinated with this group. Um, and and the story with King is really interesting. Uh, Martin Luther King um, was hesitant to come out against the war. What uh, is important is that really through 1967, most Americans supported the effort, uh, including liberals. And uh, Heschel's very early in his anti-war stance. Most people were not with him. And King had been hesitant to speak about it. A because many civil rights leaders supported the war, and. Many civil rights leaders didn't understand why should any prominent person like King get the movement involved in this war, which was going to be controversial. And they were scared of angry Lyndon Johnson. King worried uh, Johnson, who had been good on civil rights, would be angry if he comes out. Uh, But but gradually, King is becoming frustrated. He gives a few low-level speeches that don't get a lot of attention, where he starts to hint at his opposition. But finally, in April of 1967, he decides to come out against the war, and he accepts an invitation from Heschel's group, Calcaf, to speak at the Riverside Church in New York. And King gives a very, very strongly worded uh, speech about the corruption of this war and how problematic it is, not just as a policy, but he says for the soul of the country. Um, and Heschel's sitting right next to him as this speech is being made, Heschel will follow up with a speech of his own. And a civil rights historians say this was important because after this, King is forever until his assassination, an integral part of the movement and helps elevate anti-war activism to a new level. So this group was really very important. And Heschel is right at the center of the leadership.
0: So I remember arriving in Washington, D.C. in 1969 and going to these rallies. And my father had us speaking out against the war in 1966 or 1967. I think my middle brother was thrown out of his elementary school class for speaking out against the war. But even the rabbinical assembly, as late as 67, still supports the war. But I remember arriving in D.C. in 69 and meeting Daniel and Philip Berrigan and William Sloan Coffin and Father Drynan, And that core group of Jesuits, like Heschel on the Jewish side, yeah. leading this moral challenge to the legitimacy of the war and what we were doing there.
1: Yeah, and the Berrigans are very close friends of his uh, as well, They th- through, the, through the anti-war effort. And I think that's part of the impact they had. I mean, I think, look, a lot of the anti-war movement, they were secular. Most people were secular, but I think there was uh, a great power to having these figures in the mobilizations, in the rallies who were respected people who who could speak um, from a different place than uh, a college student or even some other sort of organizer that that made a big impression. And again, it also makes an impression on politicians and reporters to see these kinds of figures as part of the movement. Um, They're very respected. And so that's that's the role they play. But as you said, it was not easy. This was not automatic. Uh, For Heschel in 1967, the Rabbinical Assembly issues, uh, that's the organization of conservative rabbis located at the Jewish Theological Seminary, they issue this condemning statement about religious leaders who are getting involved in the anti-war movement, which is about him. Uh, I mean, that's the colleague they're really talking about. Um, So, you know, uh, even through the end of his life, he's incredibly controversial for, for a lot of the activism he was involved in.
0: As was Father Drinan, who right. essentially, because of a papal edict, had to resign his position in Congress because yep. Jesuit priests were—I guess that's what he was—was was, were not supposed to engage in politics. Was the proclamation right?
1: No, exactly right. And so I think all these leaders were talking about is obviously a, a heroic narrative about what they did, um, but they did it with a lot of serious pushback from the very institutions within which they work.
0: It took courage, actually. It took and, courage. And hence the analogy to the, the prophets railing against what they saw as wrong. Sometimes it takes a prophetic voice to see where we've gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Heschel dies in 72. Mm-hmm. And at his funeral, the director of the Jewish Theological Seminary, uh, Wolf Kelman called him a voice who spoke for the downtrodden and one who felt their pain. Nice eulogy, huh?
1: Very nice. Uh, Kalman and he were uh, good friends throughout his time in New York and uh, also found themselves on different sides. Uh, although Kalman was a big civil rights supporter, he was not so keen on the anti-war movement. And toward the end of their life, they had tension over this, but yes, it's a, a beautiful way to describe uh, who Heschel was and just as important how he's remembered through this day um I think I think that captures how those who know Heschel and not everyone really knows who he is um I'm trying to uh, kind of broaden that um but but that is exactly what he cared about and and what drove him whether those people uh, who were downtrodden were here or they were living in another country such as
0: Vietnam your eulogy, if you will, I think it's as nice as uh, Wolf Kelman's. And you write that in his lifetime, in Heschel's lifetime, he helped carve out space for progressive religious voices on the national and international stage, even as conservative forces try to claim the church and synagogue for themselves.
1: Yeah, uh, well, thank you. And I uh, think it it... Uh, kind of speaks um, on its own. Uh, But I think this is a powerful legacy. We have lived through several decades where I think uh, the religious right and the moral majority have claimed the public stage. And Heschel's story is an important one for a very different understanding of how uh, do religion and our secular world intersect and how do religious values uh, push us often Um, to make sure that the world is just and you know finishing this book in the middle of George Floyd in the middle of the pandemic the middle of so many uh, heated political issues for me personally um, was just an ongoing reminder of of why his own tradition is so important whether you agree or disagree with everything he had to say uh, that isn't uh, essential to basically getting this message that he leaves for all of us in 2022.
0: Coretta Scott King said of him in a memorial service at the Park Avenue synagogue, that he was one of the great men of our times. And in a day when a would-be emperor and King are referring to Nixon at the time, in a day when we have a would-be emperor and King, we will miss the voice of Rabbi Heschel, just as we have missed the voice of Dr. King.
1: Yeah, and, uh, I think we will. And, and one of the nice things about Heschel, if you're from the Jewish community, is he has his writing and his writing is often incorporated into the prayer books that Jews use during the holidays or on the Sabbath. And, uh, his writing remains available for everyone today, uh, as do speeches he made and some interviews he did on the media. And I, and I hope that, uh, in that way, you know, uh, as well as through work about him, his, his, not just legacy, but the arguments he was making with such great urgency can continue to be heard uh, in our own
0: time. To put a period at the end of our interview, i love to quote you to yourself because you write so well and you write again, Herschel spent an entire career laying claim through his writings and activism that being a pious Jew meant adherence to tradition to open oneself up to God and to devote one's entire being to pursuing social social justice here and now. Is that the legacy, essentially? Yeah, Julian, I
1: think that is the legacy. And I think that's something uh, we can all benefit from uh, not just hearing, but living by.
0: The book is called Abraham Joshua Heschel, A Life of Radical Amazement. It's a terrific read, and I thank you, both for writing it and spending time with me today, Julian Zelazar. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. I enjoyed it. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.